coming today, church, to a sticky, sticky part of the Bible. We are in the book of Hebrews today. We are in Hebrews chapter 6. Now, for those of you who've done any study in Hebrews, you know that Hebrews chapter 6 is one of the most, most controversial chapters in the entire New Testament. It is debated, it is fought about, it is fought with. People don't know what to do with Hebrews chapter 6. Well, I've done a lot of studying this week, put a lot of time and prayer into it, and I believe that um, the Lord has shown me what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 6. It's nothing new. It's the same thing that, that people have been preaching since my, my hero Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached in the 1860s. So the, the Word of God hasn't changed in 3,500 years. Let's just see if we can get our hands around it today and understand it. Because as we're going to do some baptizing today, as I said to the, baptize, to the baptism class, baptism doesn't save you. Can I get an amen from somebody? Amen. Y'all better talk today. I didn't have enough coffee. So baptism can't save you. And the church said, amen. oh, y'all asleep today. Okay, someone pass out the coffee? No. Anyways, seriously, in some churches, baptism is seen as salvation. It's seen as imparting salvation. It isn't. What we're talking about today is going deep. I call this moving on today, moving on. Because Paul, well, not Paul, well, depending on how you see it, the writer of Hebrews has been hammering us for five chapters on the superiority of Jesus Christ. Amen? We've talked about that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, in the first century, they had a bunch of angel worshipers. We've got them today. Everybody's got those little angel pins in their cars. Nothing wrong with those if you've got one. Nothing wrong. But just remember, angels are just servants of Almighty God. Jesus is God. Can I get an amen from somebody? Amen. No, that's better. All right. So we talked about Jesus being superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses because all of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people of Israel worshipped Moses as the one who brought the law down from Mount Sinai. Sometimes today, we look at pastors and teachers. Pastor, you know what I'm talking about. They look at us as if we're something special. All we are is people gifted by God to bring his word and set it before the people. Amen? We are cooks that bring the banquet of God's love and set it before the people. Yet the real work of the, of the church is done by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So Jesus is superior to angels, he's superior to Moses, he's superior to the high priest. That's what he's been hammering now for five chapters. Let's go on today. We're going to move on into deep water. This is deep stuff. This is not simple stuff. Church, I'm not lying to you. This stuff right here causes fistfights among people who get caught up and argue and they miss the point. Look at it this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Our dilemma. It's our dilemma that we begin with. Therefore, leaving the elemental message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. Now understand, all of these doctrines are foundational. They are important. The writer of Hebrews is not minimizing this. He is simply saying, that's the basics. We talked about leaving the milk and going on to the meat. Amen? We talked about, hello, amen, going into the meat. I went, to, I went to a house this week, and the brother brought me out a steak. I said, thank you, Lord, someone that understands a man's need. Meat, steak, it's important. But you know what? You don't give steak to a baby because the baby ain't got no teeth. Some of the rest of it ain't got no teeth either, but thanks to modern technology, they replace them. Now you can chew the meat. 
So today we're getting into some real stuff. He says, we're leaving behind the basics, if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away because of their own, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. That two verses right there are the most controversial, I think, in the New Testament. They're the most heavily fought about. So we're going to spend a lot of time on those today. For ground that has drunk the rain, that has often fallen on it, and has produced vegetation useful to those it is that it is cultivated for, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and will be burnt at the end. Okay, tough stuff. Let's go back and look at it. So what Paul said is this. Jesus disappeared. I'm sorry, that's my own personal bias. The writer of Hebrews says this. Basically, Jesus is superior to the angels, to the law. He's superior to the high priest because he is the high priest. He's the final sacrifice. Now he says, let's leave that behind and let's go on to some deep things, hard things. He says, it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. What's happening in the church? What is he writing to these Hebrew Christians? Real simple. At this point, the writer of Hebrews recognizes there is severe persecution in the church. How many of you guys know Voice of the Martyrs? The organization Voice of the Martyrs? They look at the persecution of the church around the world. When I tell you that over 300,000 Christians were murdered last year for their faith in Jesus Christ, that number comes from Voice of the Martyrs. They're the ones that record the acts of atrocities against Christians. How Muslim extremists stood outside of a Christian school in Indonesia and killed the children as they came out. Just shot them down. Murdered them because they were Christians and they wanted to end what the church was doing. That's what's happening in our world today. That's what was happening here. Yesterday, I watched the History Channel. The Emperor Nero did horrible, horrible things to the Christian church. He dressed up Christians like wild animals. He put wild animal skins on them. Then he turned them loose in the arena and he had wild dogs tear them to pieces. He took Christians and he tied them to stakes and he soaked their clothing in oil. And when he had his games at night, he posted these Christians on stakes around the arena and had them lit on fire so their burning bodies would light up his games. That's what was happening in this day and age the severe persecution of the church. Ask yourself, if you knew that coming here today might get you killed, would you come? If you knew that by coming in those doors, somebody with a gun might try to kill your children, would you come? If you knew that owning a Bible might get you thrown in prison and tortured, would you come to church? Ask yourself seriously, would you risk death just to have the word of God preached to you? Most of us would say yes. But in a real dark moment, if we're honest, it would be very easy to say no. That fear is not what he's talking about. Let me explain this to you. Right here in verses 4 and 5, he's talking about people who are really believers. They really have understood who Jesus is. They really have 
seen the goodness of God. They had really experienced the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But it says, what if these people, after having been through all of this, should suddenly turn away? What's he talking about? This is where I spent my week researching. The word here is the word apostasy. Do you know what apostasy is? Read the book of Jude and you'll know what apostasy is. Apostasy is not being afraid to identify yourself as a Christian. That is not apostasy, that's fear. God can forgive fear. You know how I know? He forgave Peter three times for doing just that. That's not apostasy. Apostasy is not being so scared that you stay home instead of going to church. That's not apostasy. You know what apostasy is? Apostasy is someone says, brother, I'm going to put a hole in your head if you don't deny Jesus Christ. And you say, Jesus is accursed. He was a liar. He deserved to die on that cross. That's apostasy. Apostasy is when you deny everything about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, because some unbelief raises up in your heart. Some shadow of unbelief. Many people believe that these are people who are stillborn Christians. You know what a stillborn Christian is? It's someone who comes to the brink of faith. They come right to the edge of believing in Jesus, of fully believing. Now, here's the thing you've got to understand. The Bible says whoever believes in Jesus will be saved. Can I get an amen from somebody? Okay, that word believe is not here. That word believe is pastuo in the Greek. It is trust in cling to, rely upon. It's not head. It's you sink your whole being into that person. Ladies, you know this more than anybody. I was having a conversation with a young man this week. I said, young man, you need to understand something. Men love with their eyes. That's why we like Ferraris. And that's why we love Lamborghinis and Mercedes-Benz. Women love with their soul. Not just their heart, their whole being. When a woman loves... You know, y'all be awful quiet today. They love with their whole being. And can I get an amen from the women in the church? Ah, y'all pathetic. Y'all sad. Here's the thing. Thank you. Real men don't just love Jesus. Real men put everything on their faith in Jesus. Now, men, can I get something from you? Uh, Everybody gets a little better. Okay. I'm trying to get you to understand this verse. This verse has been used to prove to people that you can lose your salvation. This is not sinning. This is not cheating at poker. This is not lying to the boss about where you were. This is not skipping church. This is in your life. You come to the brink of believing, trusting, clinging to Jesus, and at the last minute, unbelief rises up and takes away that faith. You say, but pastor, you can't prove that to me. You can't show me anybody in the Bible like that. Yes, I can. You know his name, don't you? Judas Iscariot. Judas walked with Jesus. He slept beside him. He ate with him. He heard him every day. He experienced Jesus in a way that we would die to experience. And I mean that literally. We would love to have been with Jesus, talked with him, asked him questions, been there, experienced him on a day-by-day basis for three years. Yet at the crucial moment, Judas didn't believe. He saw him. He thought about it. He thought, this is the Messiah. This is the one that will free Israel. He'll drive off the Romans. But at that crucial moment, he couldn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior. 
There's a lot of people in church who are Judas Iscariot. They get the belief up here. They get the shot to halabat right here. Ooh, they get excited in church. But in the deepest part of their soul, they're depending upon themselves, their decisions, their goodness for salvation. If you're doing that today, I say this with reverence and love, you are a screaming fool. You are an absolute raka, an idiot, if you believe that anything you do endears you to Jesus Christ. We had this discussion earlier. Well, the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, yes, exactly. Work it out, not work for it. Later on, he's going to encourage them to be diligent in their faith to Jesus Christ. That means you put as much work into getting to know Christ, getting to know his word, becoming one with him as you can do. But you don't do that to possess him. You do that because you are possessed by him. Ladies, do you serve your husband because he's perfect? Don't answer that, wife. I don't let her, I don't let her flatter me in public. Katrina, do you serve Lenny because he's perfect? There you go. Why you serve him? Because you love him. Love is not an emotion. What is it? I explained this to my young man this week. I said, love is never an emotion. It begins with an emotion. That's why there's four words for love in the Greek. First is eros, the erotic, the passion, the thing that springs up and blinds us. But you have to move past that to get to the, to get to the agape love. The agape love says this, I'm going to love you even when you don't love me. I'm going to respect you even when you don't respect me. I'm going to do things for you when you do nothing for me because I have set my love on you. Anybody recognize that scripture? That God set his love, he chose to love us, he chose to love Abraham, and because we have faith, we have the faith of Abraham, he chooses to love us. When we do nothing to merit that love, this person right here, who has tasted, who has seen, who has known the goodness of God, it says he would re-crucify the Son of God again because this person is a still-born believer on the cusp of really believing. Here's the great thing. This is only a warning. Did you realize that? This isn't a description of real people. He's not saying, brother so-and-so, this is him. He's not saying that. He's saying if somebody experienced all of this and yet goes back to the law, goes back to Moses, goes back to angels, if you go back to the first five chapters, you've given up everything that God would bring and what God would give to you. Consider this, 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't bring death, there is a sin that brings death. And I'm not saying you pray about that. Right here in 1 John, he talks about a sin that leads unto death. What is the sin that leads to death? What is it? And you find it right here in Mark 3, 28. I assure you, people will be forgiven all their sins and whatever blasphemies they may blaspheme, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Here's the one they should be worried about, not Hebrews. What is the sin that leads to eternal judgment? Go back to the context of the passage. Never guess. Always go back to the Bible, 10 verses before, 10 verses after, and find out what they're talking about. Real simple. Jesus had done a miracle. And they said, he does that miracle by Beelzebub, by Satan, not by God. Because why? 
because they weren't the ones getting the glory. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were not getting any glory. And Jesus was doing what they couldn't do. And they were jealous. And they were consumed with jealousy. You're doing that by the power of the devil. Jesus warns them, you can blaspheme the Son, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're a dead man. Why? Why is it that this is a sin? Who testifies to the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives? The Holy Spirit. Who leads us to faith in Christ? The Holy Spirit. Who testifies that we are born again? The Holy Spirit. So if we deny the testimony of the Holy Spirit, what are we? Dead. We are dead if we deny the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. They were denying what God was doing through Jesus. And if, if you deny that, you deny the Messiah. With no Messiah, you can never be good enough. The, the Pharisees had 660 plus laws, and it couldn't make them acceptable to God. What could we ever do to make God love us? Nothing. This person described here, this is a warning that no matter how great you think you are, if you go back to the law, you are crucifying Jesus all over again, and there's no hope for you. Because why? It's not as if God won't forgive a sinner. Wayne commits a sin, he asks God to forgive him. 1 John 1, 9 says what? If you confess your sin, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and cleanse you of unrighteousness. Can I get amen from the front row? Somebody. Okay, that's the way it goes. But here's the thing. If you blaspheme Jesus... If you turn your back on the Son of God and you say Jesus was a liar, he was just a man, he was just a prophet, he was not the Son of God, and that's what a lot of denominations say. That's what the Jesus-only movement says. Jesus was just a man. If you say that, what hope have you got? None. You have no hope. That's why there's apostasy. It's the final turning away from what God has provided. Remember, they asked Jesus, what do I do to work the works of God? What did he say? Did he say pray? Did he say go to church and tithe? Did he say testify? Did he say sing songs? What is it that we do to work the works that God requires? Jesus said it. Believe in the one whom Yahweh God has sent. Then you have worked the works unto salvation. And that's not even works. Everything was done for you. The Holy Spirit led you to that point. You just agreed. So let's look at that. That's our dilemma. If you look at it, that's what's going on right here. And he talks about how the ground, if it's dry, if it produces nothing but thistles, the ground is burned out. Remember the parable of the sower? The sower goes out and he sows the same seed on the four grounds. Only one ground prospers, right? This is the ground that didn't prosper. You know, you can have people come to church and they can jump and they can praise and they can have a great time. But if the seed of the gospel doesn't get in their soul, and it doesn't dig down deep, if it doesn't convict them of sin, if it doesn't show them their need for a Savior, then guess what? They will not repent. If they don't repent, they will not be born again. If they're not born again, their eternal destiny is destruction. I don't like that, but that's what the Word of God says is true. If it says it, it's true, amen? Let's move on. Hebrews 6, 9, 9 through 15. That's our dilemma. Our dilemma is we can't go back to the law. The church was being persecuted. People were being murdered. They were dying hideous deaths. There was a great temptation to say, Jesus can't be real. He cannot be real. You know what's weird? In this world, any country where the church is hounded and persecuted, like the Sudan or like Indonesia or China, you know what happens to the church? 
honey, it grows. It grows like a strong plant. You know what happens in countries where the gospel is not challenged? The church grows anemic and sick and weak because there's no cost to serving Jesus. And if there's no cost to serving Jesus, then everybody will just go to church and say, oh, I believe, I believe. 85% of Americans say they believe in God. You can't tell it by our country. You can't tell it by the decisions we make and the things we do. Let's go on. Hebrews 6, 9 through 15. There's our commitment. Our commitment is involved in moving on. Even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, now notice this. This tells you it was just an example. This tells you it was just a warning. Even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of the better things connected with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them. Now we want you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope. Remember the word hope? It means a sure and certain expectation. This is not a vain hope. This is what you know is going to come to those who believe in Jesus Christ. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. Remember Abraham? Got to walk through the land. God said, wherever you put your foot, I'm going to give it to who? Your descendants. Abraham never lived to see the promised land. You realize that? He never lived to take possession of it. Why did he believe in God? Because God said, after you're dead and in the ground, and after your people go into the captivity 400 years, God prophesied the Egyptian captivity of 400 years. You know that, right? Just say yes, make me feel better. Okay. After that 400 years, then I'm going to bring your people into the promised land. Abraham believed even though he would never inherit it. Would we believe the promises of God for our children and our grandchildren if we knew we would never see it? Could we walk by that faith? Could we walk by the faith that no matter what we do, God is going to prosper his work? You know, think about this. We love to do things that we can see the result of, don't we? Just say amen because you know it's true. We want to see the results of our work. We want to see good things come out. Here's the thing. Sometimes we don't see it. You share the gospel with somebody at work. You don't know, Sister Lillian, if they're ever going to come to faith. They may move to somewhere forsaken like Florida. You know, and, and while they're there, they remember what you told them. They see the word, the Holy Spirit convicts them. They get saved, but you never know it until you get to heaven. Is that okay with you? Of course it's okay. Our job is not to see the harvest. Our job is to plant and water and believe God for the harvest. We know that God will do it. Why? Because that word, which proceeds out of my mouth, says the Lord, will accomplish everything I send is to do. It will never return to me void. God's going to do everything God is going to do. Our role is to be faithful in our part. That's it. Amen? We don't have to get blessed. We don't have to see the profit of it. We don't have to receive anything. We're just faithful servants doing our job. And now that flies in the face of the prosperity gospel that's going on out there. It goes in the face of all those who say, if you give $1,000 today, God will give you $10,000 back. You know what I had to say to that brother? You a liar. Because the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus made us a promise. You know what it was? If they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they kill me, they're going to kill you too. That's the promise of God. Lay hands on that one and it will come true. God never promised you to be rich or wealthy or healthy. Paul had an affliction, a thorn in the flesh, he calls it. And gentlemen, 
I heard someone say that the thorn in the flesh for Paul was his wife. Don't say that. It's not true. Wives are a blessing from God. Yeah. Oh, y'all slow. Y'all slow today. Okay, here we go. It's better. All right. Wives are a blessing from God. It was probably his eyes. Paul had trouble with his eyes. That's why he had a secretary. Most of us have secretaries because we're too lazy to do our homework. Paul wanted to do it. He wanted to write. He wanted to be there. But God, he said, three times I petitioned you to take away the thorn, and you didn't take it away. Is that okay with you if God doesn't take away your thorn? Yes, it's okay, because God intended it for a purpose. You look at someone like Joni Erickson Tata, in a wheelchair since he was 17, dove in the water, the water was too shallow, broke her neck, oop, never got out of the wheelchair, never got healed, never got restored. You know what happened? God blessed the world through her broken body, because her spirit was not broken by what happened to her body. That's how our lives are. We have to go on no matter what happens. I love this. He says, now we want to, each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope. It's what I said about putting in that time. We are diligent to share the gospel. We're diligent to study the word. Remember I tell you on Sunday morning, don't believe me when I tell you this stuff. You need to write this stuff down. You need to go home. You need to open your Bible, open your commentaries, look it up, make sure it's true. You know why? Because if I tell you something, you don't like it, you'll go, that's the pastor's opinion. I don't have to believe that. And you're right. You don't have to believe nothing the pastor tells you. However, you need to read the Word of God. And whatever it says to you is binding, amen? And my job is just to help you understand it and to grab hold of it and to live it out. But you need to take possession of that Word for yourself. You need to make sure that that's what it says. That's your job. When I was in school, I didn't believe anything my teachers told me. I thought they were too old to be living. So I would go home and check it out. You know what? Nine times out of nine, my teachers were right. On the odd occasion, I had a teacher that was off in the middle of nowhere, but it's okay. So you need to check everything out so you can lay hands on it. Because if you read it and you know it's true, you're going to live it out. Pastor, can I get an amen from you? There you go. That's preaching now. You got you to help me out up here, you know. People are slowing down today. All right. He says the same diligence. That's why it says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for salvation. Work it out. Study it. Know it. Pray it through. Dig it up. If you have one scripture and you don't understand it, go 10 verses ahead, 10 verses behind. Then you have the context. After you have the context, look at the connecting verses. There are a dozen other scriptures in the Bible that will back it up and will give you a clearer picture of that. And you know what? If you have a verse that troubles you, Hebrews 6, 4 and 5 bugged me all week long. Man, I was in like eight different commentaries and six different versions of the Bible trying to really, I knew what it said, but I really wanted to wrap my hands around it so I could give it to you. Because I want you to know your salvation is assured. But no matter what persecution comes into your life, no matter what it costs you to stand for Jesus, you don't commit apostasy by saying, you know what? God didn't give me everything I want, so he must not be real. There's a lot of people like that come to church, they try it out, God doesn't bless them, they don't get 10,000 back for their 1,000, and they say, God must be a liar. See, the thing is, God could still save that person, but their heart is so bitter and so hard, they'll never repent. Just like Pharaoh, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. What's the last verse say? God hardened his heart. He finished the job that Pharaoh started. That's how it goes. So we do the same diligence going again and again to the Word of God so that we know we've got it. That's our commitment to what God has done in our lives. If you're a young man and you know that God wants to use you, 
you need to put the time into prayer and the time into Bible study so that you know what you're talking about. When your friends ask you a question, you need to dive in there and get that answer. Don't just get some person's opinion somewhere. You need to dig it out. Make sure it's yours. He says, be imitators of those that you see. Paul says, imitate me in the same way that I imitate who? Jesus. In the same way that Paul was mirroring who Jesus was, he wanted his disciples, those who followed him, to mirror Jesus as he mirrored him. And that's what I would have from you too. If there's anything I want you to learn from me as a pastor, it's this. Your most passionate aspect of life should be your devotion to Christ. Husbands, I'll tell you this. If you love your wife more than you love Jesus, you are messed up in the head. You know why? Because you cannot, you cannot love a woman completely and fulfillingly unless Jesus Christ is more important to you than she is. You know why? Because no matter what your wife does, Jesus will keep you straight in your devotion to your wife. Amen? Ladies, same thing. You may think that your husband is old and bald and fat and lazy, but you married him, so it's your own fault. No, I'm just kidding. Anyways, no, God gave him to you, and you need to seek out your relationship with Christ first. Because when you're straight with the Lord, it'll make it that much easier for you to submit to your husband and do diligence, and that will bring peace to your family and peace to your house and peace to your marriage. Ask any woman who has wrestled with biblical submission, and when they get it in line, when they figure out that it doesn't mean your husband's better than you, every married man knows his wife is smarter than him. Every married man knows this. We're not going to say it publicly, even though I just did. Amen. There we go. But we know it. You don't have to remind us. Just let us think we know what we're doing. No. It's all about digging into the word and finding all those things out. Now, when God made the covenant with man, this is important to you, because this goes back to verses 4 and 5. When God made the covenant with Abraham, it was traditional in the Hebrew culture of that, well, they weren't Hebrew yet, but in the culture of that day, when two men made a covenant, they took an animal and they cut it in half. That was a sacrifice. The two men would walk through the midst of the sacrifice together, symbolizing they were entering into the same path, right? Now, if at any point one man deviated or broke the covenant, then the covenant was no longer binding, right? Remember what happened after the sacrifice was cut and Abraham was ready to walk through with, with the Lord? Remember what happened? Fell asleep. And it says, as Abraham slept, a fire passed through the midst of the sacrifice. Don't believe me. Look it up. Read it, because this is important. Right here in Hebrews, it says, God, because he could swear by nothing greater, made the covenant with himself. Believer in Jesus Christ. John 3, 16, 17, 18 is not a covenant with you where you have to keep it. It's God's covenant with himself that he will bring to salvation, keep in salvation, maintain in salvation, all those who have come to Christ. And God swore that by himself. Since he made it with himself, God's not going to break his own covenant with himself. That's why your salvation is assured. If you have come to Jesus Christ, you have realized your sin, you have repented of that sin, you have recognized your need for a Savior, you have pled the blood of Christ, just like, the, just like this Passover, you put the blood of Christ upon your heart by accepting him as Lord and Savior, your eternity is secured. Now, because it is secured, work on it. When you get married to a gorgeous woman, it's not over. That's where it starts. And nobody said amen. I'm like, I need a men's retreat. 
teach y'all how to get out of the doghouse. When the pastor says, you married a beautiful woman, you say, hey, hey, amen. Hey, because, you know, your wife's going to love you. First of all, you're just, you're, just, you're just agreeing with God to what he already did, right? Because remember, your wife came from God. Don't turn your nose up at God's gifts. Anyhow, I just lost my point. I hate when that happens. Okay, we're going to press on now. I think you know where I was going. Anyway, so God's full with himself. When you get married to a gorgeous woman, that's where the work starts. Husbands, amen? Because as you grow, as you develop, she grows, she develops, you have to keep working on that relationship. You say, but I, I'm already married to her. I already got my trophy wife. I'm good to go. No, you didn't. You just inherited a lifetime of labor. And it's a labor of love. Ladies, don't laugh, because you know it's true, too. You inherited that man, and now you got to work with him. Because you can't change a man. You can't housebreak a man. You can only work with a man. And all the men should say, amen. Don't try to change me. It ain't going to work. Don't forget, you married him, it's your fault. Okay, here's the thing. That's where the work begins. And you don't work to earn her love. You work because you love her. Amen? Amen. Ladies, you work with your husband not to earn his love, but because you love him. Amen? Amen. Young people, you do well in school, and you work hard, and you clean your room, and you polish your father's car and his golf clubs, not because he's going to pay you an allowance, but because you love him. Just say amen. Make me feel better. My brother don't believe it. <laughs> Anyways, that's the truth of it. We do what we do out of the love that is born in that relationship. That's what he's talking about here. John 10, 25. I did tell you and you don't believe. Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you don't believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Your relationship is secure, but that doesn't mean you can sit back and be a lazy bum. That's what he says right here. He says right here, I'm speaking to you because we are confident of better things. For God is not unjust who will forget your work and the love that you showed in his name. Remember, the work doesn't get you salvation. It comes out of the relationship. I want you to demonstrate the diligence so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promise of faith. We want to be diligent. We want to be excited about our work for the Lord, about our work for the Lord, because that's our relationship. You see what I mean? If someone looks at you and you are, oh, man, I got to go to church and I got to put up with this and this and this, they're going to wonder why you go to church. You ever met a Christian who was sour? I mean, they look like they've been sucking on lemons for 30 years. You ever meet those people? And you wonder why they go to church, because they always look unhappy. They never look glad to be there. You know, you, you talk about Jesus, and they go, yeah, yeah, I believe he's God. It's like, where is the passion? You know, talk to a grandmother about her grandchildren, and her face will light up, amen? Talk to a mother about her children, her face will light up. Talk to a dad about his brand-new golf club, his face will light up. But the thing is, we light up over the things that we love. And if we love the Lord, we should light up when his word is read. We should light up when we talk about him. We should light up when his name is mentioned. Because that reaction tells the world that our, our love is sincere and real. If every time I say, how's your wife, you go, oh, well, you know, she's this and this. I'm going to know you've got an issue in your relationship, amen? 
But if I say, how's your wife? Oh, she's wonderful. She made me a great dinner. She's such a spectacular woman. And then I'll go, yep, this man's in love. That's good. That's a good thing. Remember, the world's looking at you to know why they should believe in Jesus. Why should I believe? Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Messiah? And the only way they can know that is through you. Now get this. You can't save nobody. Only the Holy Spirit can bring someone to salvation. Paul said, I plant Apollos waters, but the Holy Spirit reaps the harvest. Amen? Let's at least plant with some passion and water with some love, okay? And then we'll let the Holy Spirit do his job. That's what it says right here, and that's what I think we need to do. Our commitment is to love and to be passionate and be plugged into what God's doing. Let's wrap it up. Hebrews 6, 16 through 20. Hebrews 6, 16 through 20. This is our assurance. This is the assurance of everything we have by moving on into those deep places. For men swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that these two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, who has those who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to seize the hope set before them. Look at that line again. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before them. We're going to come back. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he had become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is an assurance of salvation, of hope, of eternal life. If you have ever questioned, what is my hope? Can I know that I'm saved? Can I know I have a future? Here's your answer right here. Take a look at this. His unchangeable promise to the heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs of promise? Who are the heirs? Take a look at this. Titus 3, 5 through 7. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The sure, certain knowledge of eternal life. You say, can I know I'm saved? And I say, yes, you can. Right here is the proof of it. God did not want to leave you in the dark. He gave you every proof that you need to know to know that you are saved. And that's it. He saved us not by the works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Why are we saved? Because we were good people? We did good things? We were kind? We were smart enough to accept Jesus? No. He set his love on us as he set his love on Abraham. He chose to love us. And in choosing, he sent the Holy Spirit to open our eyes open our souls that we might receive the knowledge of salvation through the preaching of the gospel. That's his unchangeable promise to the heirs of promise. The scripture says that I am an heir and a joint heir with Christ. As surely as Jesus will reign, I will reign with him because I am an heir. He says, I don't call you servants. I call you brothers. I call you blood. I call you the relative. I told you, in Roman culture, you could disown a child. Children, you could be disowned if your parents just don't like you no more. But once you are adopted into a family, a Roman family, you can never be disowned. Amen? Guess what? I've been adopted by the king. He can't disown me. He chooses not to. Sometimes he should, but he never has. Because he made a promise, and he swore it with an oath 
to himself that whoever comes to Christ will not perish. Now going down, he says this, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. Let me ask you something today. Are you strongly encouraged by the word of God that you have a future that is sure, that is set, that is profitable, that is great? Do you believe that? Don't answer it because I don't want to make liars out of most of you. I think our world has so beaten us down. Our world has so traumatized us that sometimes we really think, oh, Jesus, I just want to be saved by the skin of my teeth. What's the skin of your teeth got to do with this? That's just because you didn't brush this morning. The skin, get it? Skin of your teeth. Y'all missed that one. Okay, fine, go on. Anyways, this says right here that we have fled to Jesus. We have realized our need for a Savior. We've come to the Savior that we might have a strong encouragement to seize the hope. Seizing takes action. Guys, you ever play football? Nobody play football. Okay, wait. When you play football, there's something you got to do. Unless you're playing flag football. You got to seize the brother on the other team and throw him on the ground. Amen? You got to seize him. That's a physical action. That is an act of movement. It's an act of action. You seize that hope. How do we seize the hope in Jesus Christ? We act like we belong to the people of God. This says, I have a hope set in eternity. And that hope is based on Jesus Christ. That means if I speak his words, his words will prosper. And if I speak his words, he will be with me. And if I speak his words, they will be effective at bringing others to faith in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you really, really believe that you can speak the words of life and people can be saved? Remember Casting Crowns a long time ago came out? They're coming to town, you know, Casting Crowns. And they had a song called The Words of Life, you know, and it was, Lord, give me the words of life that I can speak that somebody might come to salvation. I like that. You know what it says? It says, I recognize that as a son of God, not as a pastor, not as a trained speaker, but as a son of God, I have his authority to speak the words of life that others might be saved. So do you. Sister Sharon, you have the ability to go into a home for beaten women, and you can speak Jesus to those women as or more effectively than I can. Ladies, those of you who are nurses, you can go into a hospital and you can pray for patients. You can pray over patients. You can pray, you can pray for co-workers. You know why? Because God hears you as much as he hears me. The only talent that pastors have that most people don't is we are absolutely fearless. We don't care what people think. We don't care if they don't like it. We don't care if they're offended by the gospel. As long as I preach that word faithfully from this word, then I have no fear about what anybody's going to do to me. But you can do the same thing in your workplace, in your home, with your family. Do you do it? Do you have strong encouragement to seize the sure and certain expectation of heaven set before you? It was important to these Hebrew Christians because they were dying. Their parents were dying. Their children were murdered. They were burned alive. They were eaten and torn apart by living animals. They were being martyred. You know the word martyr, right? Greek is the word martyr. You know what the word martyr means? One who witnesses to what they've seen and heard. If you testify to Jesus, you are a martyr, a witness. Doesn't mean you're going to die, 
but it means you're going to testify. You're going to testify as to who God is, what he's done, what he has shown you. See, I believe what the church needs to do in these last days, people, we're in the last days, amen? We need to raise up with some passion, some excitement, some conviction of soul that says, you know what? My salvation is assured, so nothing can happen to me that's outside of God's control. Therefore, I have to be bold about my faith. I have to go out and speak that hope into the lives of those who have no hope. Speak power into the lives of the powerless. And the power is not in just saying the word. It's in being rightly related to Jesus Christ. And I believe that with all of my heart, all of my soul. So are you guys ready to move on? We have covered the basics. We have covered the first five chapters of Hebrews, which is all about the superiority of Jesus. Now we've dealt with this warning. Don't be one who sees the danger and goes back. Don't go back to the world. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to angels or Moses or high priests or sacrifices. It's amazing. These words, I believe, were written in the late 60s, like 66 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? A general named Titus marched into Jerusalem. And in Titus' army, there was a jerk. And the jerk had a torch. And the jerk threw it into the temple. And the jerk burned the temple down. Of course, once they realized that as the wood burned, the gold could be collected, they ransacked the temple. That temple has never been rebuilt. In fact, they tore the temple apart to get the gold, so much so that, see if this sounds familiar to you, according to the historians, of the temple burned down by Titus's men, there was not one stone left upon another. Anybody heard that scripture before? Jesus told them, not one stone left on another. Why? They tore every stone apart to get the gold and the precious jewels and everything they could from the temple. Shortly after this was written, there was no more high priest. There were no more angels, no more Ark of the Covenant. There was nothing left except Jesus. So the, so the speaker was writing, the writer of Hebrews was speaking prophetically. So, we're going to move on. One, there are those who think they are in Christ, but they are not. There are those stillborn Christians who've come to the precipice of faith. They've come to that edge, and they almost believe, but they're not willing to risk their whole life, their marriage, their families, their jobs, on believing in Christ fully. Be sure you are in the faith. That is what the Scripture says. Make your calling and election sure. Be sure that you have crossed that threshold. You have placed your full faith. You trust in, cling to, and rely upon Jesus only. And no works, no church membership, even baptism can't save you if you have not repented and come to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Two, our focus is not on winning our salvation, but on participating in the salvation won for us by Christ. We're saved. We win the battle. Satan was defeated at the cross. That means we can't lose. They can kill me, but they can never silence the gospel. I am one voice in a legacy of voices that comes from the days of Abraham down to today. And my job is to do my part. And when the Lord takes me out, the Lord takes me out according to his will. Amen? Be part of what God is doing in his world. Third, we rest in the promise of him who cannot lie and can do anything he wishes. We are safe because God is sovereign. And when God is sovereign, God chooses to keep us to the end. Remember what the scripture says? Now to him who is able to keep you from falling. See Hebrews 6, 
4 and 5. The one who can keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence. For those of us who are in Christ, we are eternally safe. As we pray right now, I'm going to ask our baptismal candidate to go ahead and go on back and get changed. And if you need an attendant, she'll come back and help you get changed over. In just a minute, we're going to bring Sister Sharon back to the baptismal waters. We had one more person to be baptized today, but he's not able to be with us. So we'll have to get Brother Jay at a later time. But um, the baptistry is ready. And I say this with encouragement. Today, as we baptize Sister Sharon, ask yourself this question. Have I fully given myself to Jesus Christ? Do I know him as Savior here? Have I confessed him as Savior? Have I repented of my sin and invited him into my life? Because that's when all this kicks into effect. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day and this hour. Thank you for this chance to be in your presence. Lord, I pray for those who are here today, those who know the truth, those who have experienced the truth of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that we have repented of our sins, that we have come to you for salvation. And Father, I just pray that right now you will work on the hearts of any who are uncertain. Father, either give us the assurance of our salvation rooted and grounded in our experience with Jesus Christ, Father God, or cause us to be moved today to seek salvation by confessing that we are sinners, that we have fallen short of your glory, and that we need you to save us. And Father, in doing that, may we experience the peace, the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and sing just a little bit as Sister Sharon finishes getting ready, and then we'll have to sort of turn ourselves around to where the Baptist is. Let's stand up and sing. Just a stanza or two until she comes on out.